Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The New Statesman. Around the world, politicians turn to nationalism for power. We were nationalist, are nationalist, and will remain nationalist. A globalist is a person that wants the globe to do well, frankly, not caring about our country so much. And you know what? We can't have that. You know, they have a word. It sort of became old-fashioned. It's called a nationalist. And I say, really, we're not supposed to use that word. You know what I am? I'm a nationalist, okay? I'm a nationalist. If I consider Russia my homeland, this means that I love in Russian, contemplate and think, sing in Russian, and say that I believe in the spiritual forces of the Russian people. Their vision of the nation is an exclusive one. It's based on being the right race or religion or ethnicity. The nation is closed to those who don't fit the description or even to those who object to the description. Our answer is clear. We would like to preserve Europe for Europeans. This also requires an effort from other countries. This is not only something we would like, but that also we want, because it depends on us to preserve Hungary for Hungarians. The Chinese people have been indomitable and persistent. We have the spirit of fighting the bloody battle against our enemies to the bitter end. In the face of this nationalistic and historical trend, all efforts and tactics to divide the nation are doomed to fail. It's proven politically potent and powerful. But is there another way? In this series, we'll look at nationalisms around the world and ask whether it's possible to counter them with a different kind of nationalism. Could the nation be inclusive? Could it be based on civic participation and liberal values? What would that look like? What would it mean? This is a different kind of nationalism, which very much is attentive to the economic growth. So the model of economic growth or profit-making, which has a cultural element to it in the sense that more profitable you are, more it is seen as a legitimization of the nation. That's Ravinder Kaur, author of Brand New Nation, Capitalist Dreams and Nationalist Designs in 21st Century India. 
I'm also joined by Suchitra Vijayan, author of Midnight's Borders, A People's History of Modern India. Often because a handful of people manage to usurp the vast majority of the attention, whether in terms of story, whether in terms of personality, we forget how much of the resistance is still alive. In this third episode, we'll look at how Indian politics became consumed by nationalism, the role of foreign financial investment, and signs of resistance. But first, how did India, formed as a secular, pluralistic democracy, get to where it is today? Joining me now is Ravinder Kaur. She is Associate Professor of Modern South Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen and the author of Brand New Nation, Capitalist Dreams and Nationalist Designs in 21st Century India. Our listeners will be familiar with her. She's been on the podcast before. She is excellent and brilliant. Ravinder, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Emily. To start out, the, the, the big question, why do you think that nationalist politics have proved so effective in India? And to bring in your book, how does this play into capitalism? Because I think we often bring up, you know, oh, Hindu nationalism, oh, you know, Prime Minister Modi and these politics, but we leave out this other component of it, which you rightly bring back in. Thank you so much for this question. I think, first of all, I would say that it is not that nationalism as a force in politics is something new. It has always been there, but what has happened is that the character of nationalism has changed. What I mean by that is that during 1970s, 80s, and up till sometimes 1990s, it was very much you know, the idea of unity and diversity as the slogan which sought to bring people together. And sometimes in 1990s, a shift began to take place, and that was more towards Hindu nationalism, where Hindu identity began coming to fore. And it was pretty much contested at that moment. But in the last 10 years or 12, it has increasingly gained strength. So I think it is the nature of nationalism from unity in diversity to Hindu nationalism, that is the thing that we need to speak about. And of course, the second thing that you've asked about is how is it connected to capitalism? And indeed, I think often the sphere of economy and the sphere of politics is seen as so much detached from each other. But here, what we have seen is that the rise of cultural nationalism has gone hand in hand with the 1990s economic reforms and a particular kind of Hindu nationalism which has taken shape. What I mean to say is that the role of investments or foreign investments specifically has played a role almost as a kind of affirmation of the nation where a territory of investment can also potentially be turned into a unified cultural zone. I think it is this kind of unlikely connection that I have been exploring in my own book. And what you witness is that in the first decade of economic reforms, the focus still was very much on presenting India on the global stage as world's largest democracy, world's largest you know, free market democracy. But now, as you can see, in the last five or six years, the focus has begun changing where Hindu framework or the signs and symbols of Hindu religion have started taking a more central space. There are many, many examples of that, that how it has started happening also in the ways in which India interacts on the global stage. It's interesting because I think often people, both proponents of globalization and politicians who use nationalism, present globalization as the antithesis of nationalism. But you're sort of saying, actually, these two things went hand in hand, at least in India. 
yes, indeed. And what happened in India, and actually not just in India, in many other parts of the world, which is that it is not the same old kind of nationalism the way we know from 19th and 20th century, which has been revived. This is a different kind of nationalism, which very much is attentive to the economic growth. So the model of economic growth or profit-making, which has a cultural element to it in the sense that more profitable you are, more it is seen as a legitimization of the nation and its culture and politics, which goes on and on in it. And I think this element has often been overlooked, that how the spread of capitalism has also led to a kind of cultural revival, which is very much attuned to a different kind of, I would say, post-global nationalism, the way we are witnessing now. I wanted to ask you about the CAA, so the Citizenship Amendment Act, and the NRC, the National Register of Citizens. Can you briefly describe to our listeners what they are and how you see them as fitting in to all of this? It's very interesting. You know, CAA is Citizenship Amendment Act, and NRC is a National Register of Citizenship. And these were the recent proposals, legislations to make amendments to the Citizenship Act. And of course, it is all to do with making more concrete who belongs and who does not belong to the nation. And that, of course, comes from a particular kind of nationalism that we have been discussing. And uh, it is about indigeneity, who is the real authentic inheritor of the nation and who is foreign to it. Or let's say, who is the internal other that one has to be wary of. And of course, this is much directed at the Muslim minorities, where it was seen as making a gradation within the Citizenship Act, which has been since 1947 in India. Of course, it led to massive public protests. And I must also note that CAA and NRC are not entirely the same, even though they are interlinked, namely to make a National Register of Citizenship But it begins in Assam, in northeast of India, and which has a long protracted history in curious ways, which is the indigenous Assamese who would not want the outsiders, and that was disregarding whether whether they were Muslims or Hindus, that more making a kind of territorial boundary within the Assam state. But then the moment it was upscaled to the national level, it had a completely different character. And I think that has, of course, become a very, very contentious issue while the protests subsided because of corona, the pandemic in 2020. But I think that tensions have not been erased yet. I have just two last questions for you. The first is, why do you think this form of nationalism has proved such a powerful political force? Well, there are many explanations for that. I think many people would say, of course, that it is not that in stone that it has to be like this. Some people have argued that, look, India actually at this moment lacks a different vision. This became a very powerful idea, you know, of Hindu nationalism, which has upstaged, as I said, the more secular unity and diversity kind of nationalism that had been the framework of post-colonial India. And what has happened in the meanwhile is that as secularism lost its attraction, what has not happened is an alternate vision, which can also capture the imagination of people. So in that sense, one would say that it's a hypothetical question that if India did have a strong opposition, what would be the situation right now? Maybe we can mention what is happening at the moment. Namely, there is a a mass contact program launched by the Congress party, 
which is called Bharat Jodo Yatra, which means the journey to connect India. And probably, I think the language that it has been using, it's about community, of friendship, of being together. So I think it's a different kind of language. And whether it translates to electoral gains, of course, we do not know because elections are far away. But what you do see is a different kind of language which has begun emerging as well. So this is the last question, which is, do you think that civic liberal nationalism is is possible as a counter? And do you think that's, that that is desirable? Or should we be trying to eschew nationalism and take a, a take a, a different approach? I think, of course, the answer is yes, indeed. Because we must recall that the very post-colonial project, the nationalist project, was always about developing a civic liberal nationalism. And what I mean to say is that at least distinction was sought to be made between, you know, religion, identity, faith as something which you keep private, and your civic identity, which which takes the center stage. And of course, there is lots of critique about what went wrong with that model. But the idea or the ambition, aspiration to have a kind of civic sense of belonging has, has been strong. There has also been this uh, attempt, uh, or, uh, you know, actually the ruling party, BJP, has this long had this proposal of making uniform civil code, which has also led to a lot of debates about what precisely should uniform code be. But that was one way, one proposal to overcome the ways in which the, you know, personal laws of different communities have been uh, practiced. And there is criminal law, and of course, personal laws are something which are still done along community lines and like Muslim personal law or, you know, Hindu code, etc. So there have been attempts. And I think this critique of treating people differently in, on the personal plane, this is where a possible way ahead lies to create a more civic sense of nationalism. We will leave it there. Ravinder Kaur, thank you so much for joining us. Coming up after the break, I'll be speaking to Suchitra Vijayan about the importance of not losing the personal in sweeping political narratives and why she refuses to be cynical. As a reminder, all four episodes of this series will be available on the World Review podcast feed and online at newstatesman.com slash podcasts. We're offering a special discount on new subscriptions to the New Statesman for listeners to these podcasts. You can get 12 weeks for £1 a week in the UK or $2 a week in the US by visiting newstatesman.com slash subscribe. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era, Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. 
That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Joining me now is Suchitra Vijayan. She is the author of Midnight's Borders, A People's History of Modern India. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. So you have this this broader historical view of India's identity formations, um, of the various nationalisms that have unfolded throughout. When you look at the history of India, are there certain moments that you think are really key or critical to understanding nationalism and its function in India today? Yes. But before I go into that answer, I think one thing that I found while I was reading, researching or writing my book was that people's understanding of nationalism or these important road markers are actually very, very personal. Sometimes they don't overlap with what one thinks is these national markers that we have. For instance, of course, I think one important moment was, of course, the founding of the new nation states 1947. The second kind of comes in with the emergency, the Sikh riots that happen, and of course, Babri Masjid. And all of this in some way fundamentally remakes the country. But if you ask people on the ground who are most affected, for instance, there were communities that were dealing with the violence of the partition much before 1947. And for many, the violence kind of continued to play out. So for them, the sense of nationalism is not so much as the question of belonging, but it is fighting to find a place within a nation state that perhaps couldn't contain them. And I usually start by prefacing this simply because I think it's very important to understand that how we think about India is complicated, it's complex. But the more we listen to people on the ground, I think those defining moments become different. Of course, we think about the violence that also is very important to understand India and its nationalism. Every time a certain kind of riots or pogroms take place, I think they've also kind of played an important role in remaking what it means to think about India, who belongs there, who gets to say in what's happening. So I think those are all threads and ideas that one has to take into account when one thinks about this nationalism. 
So taking all of that into account, when you look at politics in India today, because I mean, you can push back if you think this is an oversimplification, but the sort of promise that India made early on is that it would be this inclusive, secular, pluralistic state, and obviously fell short of that, as you were saying at the beginning, in many ways, at many points, but that politics today are sort of, are making a different promise, and that that promise is a a nationalism based on ethnicity and, and religion. So to start, in what ways is that a dramatic oversimplification of the narrative? And and two, to the extent that you do think that that has any any validity, what is it that makes this version of nationalism as politically powerful as it's proven to be today? I mean, this is a very complex and complicated question. And the answer, again, really depends on who you're speaking to. I think if you look at the national histories, at least the secularized national histories that has been passed on about India, the promise of secularism, the promise that everybody has a place within this fabric, was at least what was said and performed publicly. Of course, many would argue that the promises of freedom never really reached many of them. The promises of freedom not only didn't reach the vast majority of people, also we've, I mean, there's this wonderful line, I forget who the author is, who says that we forgot to ask the people what is it that they wanted this freedom for. We never asked the people. So having said that, at least the performance of secularism, the performance that everybody belongs, was very essential to this making of a nation. And I think that is what was performed very effectively, at least for the first 30, 40 years of the Republic. That doesn't mean that that is what happened on the ground, but at least the performance of secularism. If you look at the questions of citizenship that's been happening in the Constituent Assembly when India, in 1947, after the independence, uh, Nehru says, someone says, who, who, who's Indian? Who belongs? He says that nobody, anyone who wants to be Indian can be Indian, which is a remarkable sense of saying that, yes, did that really happen? Of course not. We saw that even when refugees were coming in, uh, upper caste refugees were given better places. Even refugee camps was uh, divided based on caste. So you see two things happening. One, as I said, there was a public performance of secularism, which was very essential. And then, of course, on the ground, it didn't really happen as it was. Now, that public performance of secularism is now gone. You have elected officials going against the constitution of India, saying that India is a Hindu Rashtra, that this belongs to Hindus. I think the Citizenship Amendment Act, the CAA and the NRC together, I think fundamentally remade even that performance of secularism. It said that certain people had to consistently perform belonging and loyalty and had to consistently keep proving that they are citizens of this country. And even after you've proven that you're a citizen of this country, you might still not be given the rights of a citizen. So what you're really seeing is a consistent and ongoing erosion of citizenship rights. And it happens in many, many ways. It happens through legislation. It happens through laws like what's happening with the hijab case that's happening in India, where women are being denied access to education because of what they wear. There is criminalization of who you love, what you eat. So that erosion, everyday erosion, is what is happening. Of course, there is violence and lynching, where you target particular communities, Muslims, Dalits, Adivasis, almost anybody who questions the state. So that erosion is now very much entrenched within the system. The system now no longer upholds rights of citizens. The system now is geared 
to help the state erode citizenship into subjecthood. And once you become a subject, it's very impossible for you to really ask for anything. And historically, we've seen that once a citizen is reduced to a subject, the road to annihilation, whether it is cultural, political, geographical, and even personhood, that becomes very easy. I wanted to ask what you made of the language of of anti-national. Something that has struck me is that it's not just subject, I mean, it is subject to the state, but it's also the alignment of the state with this one political party or one political project. And if you don't agree with that, regardless of who you are, you can be dismissed as an anti-national rhetorically and find that that has consequences in your wider life. What do you make of this, this anti-national language? Oh, I think we've we've gone past the anti-national language. Anti-national kind of began its early life online, at least, with around 2012-13 is when the BJP starts using the language of anti-national. By this time, they were already going after people who were very critical of the government's work in Operation Greenant and others. So they were already saying that anybody who now spoke in disagreement with the state was an anti-national. And after anti-nationals, we have something called urban Naxals, which means that they're not only going after, um, not that somebody who's a Maoist or a Naxal should be shot down. That's also very um, illegal, unconstitutional, undemocratic. But now you're going after people who are supporting resistance within India. So since then, we've gone from anti-national to urban Naxal. And then Amit Shah, India's uh, second most powerful man, basically called intellectuals half Maoists, as in that if you're an intellectual, you're intellectually also now automatically a terrorist. So you don't have to have committed a crime. We've seen this performed with the arrest of GN Sai Baba, the arrest of BK-16 political prisoners, the other young Muslim students and activists picked up after the Delhi violence. So from anti-national, we have urban Naxals, half Maoists. And with Kashmir and what's happening now, they have a term called white-collar terrorists and narrative terrorism. So we've moved really far away from just the figure of somebody who is disagreeable to the state, where imagine the language now they want to make the offense of being a narrative terrorist. The government of India wants to make narrative terrorism an offense and a crime. And one wonders what is narrative terrorism? And with the arrest of two journalists, very specifically Fahad Shah in Kashmir, the government actually said that, oh, you are only writing about violence. You're not writing about the Indian state's development. With the arrest of Siddiq Khapan, they similarly said, oh, this man is a troublemaker because he talks about the marginalized, about the violence against marginalized. He really doesn't write about anything that supports what the Indian state has done. So now from just being someone who is anti-national because you disagree with the government, You've made it terrorism mm. to write stories, stories that are critical. So narrative terrorism is actually, a, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. This is this is not, I, I can't even call this a rebellion. So in that sense, you have written blank checks, law and society together through the process of propaganda is created blank checks for the government in which they can cash in any time. Anyone can be picked up. Anyone is an anti-national. And an anti-national, the figure of the anti-national is also now a terrorist. And with India's UAPA laws, a terrorist is designated unilaterally. So the government will call someone a terrorist and you'll have to spend the rest of your life in prison trying to prove that you're not one. 
So these are incredibly scary times. So it's we are in this position where we are way beyond the term anti-national. It also sounds listening to you, and I don't mean to sound pessimistic or cynical, but what this what this podcast is asking is, okay, we have all these ethno-nationalisms around the world. Can you reimagine it? Can you can you reclaim nationalism to be civic and liberal and inclusive? And it just sounds like, please push back if you think I'm wrong, but that it's sort of past that point in India where like a narrative can compete with this narrative. You know, the narrative itself is too all-consuming, all-encompassing for like, oh, we'll just have a civic nationalism and and fight them that way to to be workable at this point. Yes, things are very bad. But I also want to remind everyone that no matter how bad things are, the resistance is still alive. Maybe mm-hmm. we don't see them reported as much. Maybe we don't talk about them as much. Often because a handful of people manage to usurp the vast majority of the attention, whether in terms of story, whether in terms of personality, we forget how much of the resistance is still alive. And at those pockets of resistance are still fighting for something that is better. Perhaps it is not really, it doesn't maybe function well with the narrative arc of how we think resistance must work, but it's still there. For me, the question is not so much as can we reimagine? The question is we have to reimagine. We Mm -hmm. have to radically reimagine what the future entails. And that is already here. And I think that radical reimagining happened with the anti-CAA protests because months before the Babri judgment happened and I was having a conversation with someone saying that, oh, is this it? And and nobody came out, nobody protested. There were some disagreements, but the Muslim population in India really didn't come out and protest the way they would expect And there was a moment when everybody felt, is this it? Is this it? And then the CAA happened and the anti-CAA protests just bloomed. Shaheen Bagh bloomed. But Shaheen Bagh did not bloom out of nowhere. It happened because there were students and activists constantly thinking and pushing for it. And similarly, since then, you've seen ways in which people have turned up for each other. The ways in which the Dalit and the Muslim students are consistently fighting for what is theirs. They are constantly engaged with the state to a point where I feel that they are far more courageous than one is required to, but they are doing that. Um, So that is happening. But as I said, we must reimagine. If the Hindutva nationalism, the authoritarian regimes that you see playing out did not come out of a vacuum, this is a hundred-year cultural project, whether it's the right in the US, whether it's the right in the Europe, whether it's the authoritarian right in India, they have been working towards this for over 100 years. I mean, at least in India with the RSS and the BJP, their project of owning this cultural space is almost 100 years. So the process of reclaiming this is also a longer project. And that has to radically reimagine. And we cannot go back to the status quo. Mm. And it might not happen perfectly. It might have mistakes. It will, for every victory one has, there might be step backs. But it has to happen. And I feel it is already happening. And I just wish that that sense of resistance also gets a little bit more attention. It's hard, but despair is no no way forward in this time. So on that note, let's not end on despair. We are going to end on resistance and the need to reimagine. Suchitra, thank you so much for coming on this podcast and speaking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Next week, in the fourth and final episode of Nationalism Reimagined, we'll look at the United States. When I, as a, a 20th century American, think about nationalism. I think of black nationalism, which was not so much against imperialism like in India, but against white supremacy. 
the far right has effectively taken over one of our two major political parties. What can those who want to remain a democracy do to challenge the far right's claim on this country? You've been listening to Nationalism Reimagined, a special worldview podcast series from the New Statesman. I have been Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C., and this podcast was produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. Thank you for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.